welcome back to Open Airways, a podcast on medicine, health policy, and life in the bluegrass. I'm your host, Jessica Adkins Murphy, but you can call me Jess. I'm an ER resident doctor in Kentucky, trying to have a better understanding of the ways that legislation and life outside of the hospital affect our health and the health care that we can provide. It's called Open Airways because just as important as it is for us to be able to breathe is the ability to communicate, Um, communicate about the issues that affect our health to legislators and those who have the power to make a change in these issues. For today's episode, I wanted to start off by telling the de-identified story of a real patient that I um, interacted with. About 10 years prior to us meeting, she had experienced an absolute nightmare. She was in the third trimester of um, her very wanted pregnancy, uh, her first pregnancy, when her fetus died in her uterus while she was at home. To make this devastating loss even worse, she didn't know, and the loss of her fetus went undetected for a few days as she became increasingly sick and just septic at home. By the time she made it to my hospital from her smaller emergency department, she was in septic shock. She had a extremely low blood pressure. She's receiving all of these medications to try to get her through it, um, but she just worsened. She lost consciousness, lost a pulse, started receiving chest compressions, and then had to get a resuscitative hysterotomy, which is a... Um, kind of terrifying procedure that we extremely rarely have to do in emergency medicine in which the patient has an emergency cesarean section right there in the ER um, in order to try to remove the pregnancy and get all of the mother's physical resources to perfuse her brain. So improving blood flow to the brain and reducing strain on the heart and lungs. At that time, um, years prior to my practice when she was here in and decompensating. The stillborn fetus was removed and um, she was cannulated for ECMO, um, which she was dependent on for months afterwards, meaning basically her heart and lungs were not working properly and she had these functions completely taken over by machines. She spent the following year cycling through complications and almost died multiple times. She ended up having complete heart failure, requiring a heart transplant and remained on the ventilator for a long time, requiring a tracheostomy, all while also experiencing the emotional trauma of both her own shockingly um, abrupt hospitalization and the loss of the desired third trimester pregnancy. This is something that I can't imagine surviving, much less coming back from and having to face again with a second pregnancy. But unfortunately, her birth control had failed and she was pregnant. She came into the OB triage area with some um, mild symptoms of first trimester pregnancy and she was really scared. Um... She was looking around the room really nervously and telling me that this was bringing back some really bad memories and trauma from her prior hospitalization. Not all women who are pregnant are facing this level of 
life-threatening comorbidities, but all pregnancies do pose a serious risk of death to a patient. Many face other challenges that make it a life-threatening dilemma, like those who are in abusive relationships and um, become pregnant. I mean, the number one cause of death in pregnant women in the United States is homicide. For women with medical comorbidities and social challenges and so many more, legislation that forces them to continue a pregnancy can be extremely dangerous. And in some cases, it can be fatal. And for emergency physicians and obstetricians who have to make the decision about whether to intervene in cases that require us to use the same medications used for elective abortions in cases of spontaneous abortions and ectopic pregnancies, and for the OBs who serve um, patients seeking elective abortions, new laws are challenging them to be policy analysts and interpreting this in a way that allows them to try their best to protect patients while also facing the prospect of up to five years of jail time for a felony conviction. That doesn't sound like an empty threat to me. It's our topic for today. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, the impact on Kentucky, our patients, and our healthcare system, and what we can do about this miscarriage of justice. I think it would help to go over what's happened over the past few months and what the state of affairs was like prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. To begin with, prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, only two abortion clinics were open in Kentucky, both located in Louisville, putting him approximately three or four hours away from many of um, the Kentucky women that would have to seek abortions for unwanted pregnancies or pregnancies that are wanted but um, could not be continued for what are so-called elective reasons. I think that's important to note because sometimes these were wanted pregnancies that were found to have severe congenital unsurvivable birth defects that would never result in a um, child with any quality of life. Many of these births um, only surviving for a few hours or a couple of days after birth. But women seeking care in these um, unfathomably difficult situations would have to drive like three or four hours to Louisville um, to have these procedures done. And there were many other measures in place to make this more difficult to do. Um, For example, requiring that the exam be done the day before the procedure so that um, these women would have to come in, get their exam, get a hotel uh, for the night um, after having an ultrasound done and everything, and then proceeding with the procedure. Um, This is just something that was already extremely difficult to access for women who have transportation insecurity, women who um, do not have the same financial resources um, and social support that um, some other women do. So it was already a very difficult to access service that um, pretty much stratified your access based on your financial and social resources. But at least at that time, providers working at these two facilities didn't have to worry about felony charges being brought against them just for providing um, 
uh, obstetric care that's been recognized by ACOG and the AMA as um, part of the spectrum of women's uh, maternal health care. But in June of this year, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court case um, held that the uh, Constitution of the United States does not confer a right to abortion. And this overruled both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, two landmark court cases that obviously enshrined the um, right to abortion just by precedent. So though there was not a federal law guaranteeing access, um, this is what protected um women in states with strict abortion laws from having those abortion laws be um, enforced. When Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization overruled Roe v. Wade, the trigger ban that had been signed into law in 2019 um, by the Kentucky General Assembly and signed by Governor Matt Bevin was unleashed. The abortion providers at the two clinics immediately stopped providing care um, for those patients. Um, since that time, the enactability of the trigger ban has gone back and forth a couple of times, first with a cert local circuit court um, declaring it unconstitutional, and then um, with the Attorney General Daniel Cameron um, essentially petitioning to the Supreme Court of the state that um, this uh, abortion ban be enacted. As it stands currently, as I'm recording this on September 14th, uh, 2022, the abortion ban is enacted and it is currently a class D felony to provide an abortion. To better understand what this means and what constitutes this felony action, I think it would be helpful to look a little deeper at the text of the law so that um, physicians and providers can understand um, exactly what is restricted and what is at stake here. So this act signed into law in 2019 is known as an act relating to abortion. It defines pregnancy as the human female reproductive condition of having a living unborn human being within her body throughout the entire embryonic and fetal stages of the unborn child from fertilization to full gestation and childbirth. And fertilization means the point in time when a male human sperm penetrates the zona pellucida of a female human ovum. So the idea that pregnancy and what we're going to legislate here begins at the time that a sperm makes contact with the human egg makes this the most restrictive abortion legislation that we have had in this country in over 50 years that's been um, enactable and really the likes of which have been unseen up until now. It states in this law that the provisions of this section become effective immediately upon the um, overturning or reversal of uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, so this has been an incredibly effective strategy, honestly, in setting a trap quietly while the average person had no idea that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned just a few years later. The ban itself is that no person may knowingly administer to, prescribe for, procure for, or sell to any pregnant woman any medicine, drug, or other substance with the specific intent of causing or abetting the termination of the life of an unborn human being or use or employ 
Any instrument or procedure upon a pregnant woman with the specific intent of causing or abetting the termination of the life of an unborn human being. So this criminalizes the physicians, the pharmacists, the um, nurse, um, potentially the delivery services that may bring someone a prescribed um, dose of mifepristin and misoprostol, the um, medical abortion drugs, and says that any person who violates this um, subsection shall be guilty of a class D felony. So in Kentucky, that corresponds with a one to five year prison sentence, which um, just for context is the same as rape in the third degree, for example, like a 21 year old impregnating someone less than 16. Really let that sink in that if a 30 year old were to commit statutory rape against a 12 year old, their felony conviction would be the same level of severity as the pharmacist who filled that 12 year old's medication for a medically induced abortion. The exceptions are that um, licensed physicians performing a medical procedure necessary in reasonable medical judgment to prevent the death or substantial risk of death due to a physical condition or preventing the serious permanent impairment of a life-sustaining organ of a pregnant woman, but that every physician shall make reasonable medical efforts to preserve both the life of the mother and the life of the pregnancy in a manner consistent with reasonable medical practice. There is also a subsection that essentially says that the pregnant person will not be prosecuted, um, that they will not carry a criminal conviction for seeking out this um, service. However, we know in other states um, that is not the case. Women are not necessarily protected, which I think is an extremely frightening thing because that could potentially turn every miscarriage, every ectopic pregnancy into potentially a crime scene where a pregnant woman has to defend whether she induced an abortion herself or had a spontaneous miscarriage. Fortunately, this law also does um, specifically state that this does not prohibit the sale, use, prescription, or administration of contraceptives, including drug or chemicals, if it is administered prior to the time when a pregnancy could be determined through conventional medical testing. Conventional medical testing these days can be as early as 10 days after conception. The idea being that beyond that, the pregnancy is detectable by medical means and any provider who would be issuing an abortion has a responsibility to test for a pregnancy and if that patient has a pregnancy, they cannot give anything um, that would have the intent of ending that pregnancy. But how are hospitals interpreting this? Um, I have talked to an OB colleague of mine, and she explained that um, just as prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, they were not to administer um, elective abortions at her hospital, but she was able to treat ectopic pregnancies, even if that means ending the life of this embryo. Um, their practice will not change that much. Um, they will still be allowed to administer um, elective abortions or, or seem essentially abortions in cases in which the woman's life is not immediately in danger, but that she has an ectopic pregnancy that could potentially become life-threatening. So they will still be treating those. But the idea that... Um, these kinds of services, the same procedure that's done in that case that would be done for an elective abortion but with different context, is making a lot of OBs very scared to provide routine 
um, care for spontaneous abortions and for ectopic pregnancies. There's a lot of concern amongst OBs and the rest of us in healthcare that this could um, delay care for women who are not immediately in a life-threatening position, but um, may have to get closer and closer to the brink of decompensating before they're given the care that they need. Again, this isn't inherently something that has to be a consequence of this legislation, is the impact on uh, ruptured ectopics and um, uh, sepsis from missed abortions and missed miscarriages and things like that. But people have had anecdotal experiences like this, and it is something that seems very concerning that it could be next. Other concerning effects of this legislation, the anticipated increase in self-managed abortions. Um, patients essentially seeking out medical abortions by ordering pills online um, and participating in telemedicine without the direct supervision of a gynecologist or a primary care doctor, and um, the self-managed surgical abortions, often just by trauma, the stories of um, people being hit in the stomach to end their pregnancies, things like that. The veteran ER doctors that I know have seen patients come in with endometritis or severe infections of their uterus from self-managed abortions that were not properly supervised and not followed up upon by a licensed physician. Not only is this process more likely to occur because people are self-managing their own um, abortions, but that um, they may even delay seeking care for when these complications do arise, like hemorrhage and infection, because of their concern that they'll be turned into the police for doing so. Though all women could have some impact from this change, the biggest change is going to be felt by low-income women, those who don't have the transportation to go out of state, don't have the um, finances to buy a hotel room in Illinois to be able to get their um, abortion done. And especially this goes for people who are pregnant minors and pregnant people who um, were raped or were victims of incest. Violations of a person that are absolutely awful and unconscionable, and we should stigmatize these um, transgressions, but not the victims. And um, those who may benefit the most from being able to choose an abortion if they decide to, um, like those who are minors, like that 10-year-old um, girl in Ohio who had to go to Indiana in order to get her abortion. They are particularly um, alone and vulnerable and will be affected by this legislation. The legislators, on the other hand, who came up with these uh, trigger bans will never have to make these choices. Um, and if they do, um, it won't be choosing between paying their rent and being able to pay for a hotel room in order to go three states over and get the medical care that they need. And I know it's easy to say, I would never do that. I would never go through this procedure. But this is also affecting people who are pregnant with fetuses that have severe, unsurvivable birth defects. That is not an exception to the Kentucky trigger ban. There are no exceptions for unsurvivable birth defects. There are no exceptions for cases of rape or incest or being a minor. They truly are going to be the biggest victims in, in this legal battle. So, what are we going to do about it? 
I think I may speak for a lot of people when I say that we're tired of being told to just vote. Um, at both at the federal and the state level, though Democrats have been maybe more progressive than uh, um, Republicans on this issue, they have not been trailblazers by any means. There is a reason that we were still relying on Roe v. Wade so many years later, and a lot of it has to do with the inaction of um, our federal representatives, um, the Democrats in Congress that have not passed um, women's health care bills up until this point. This most importantly falls on the shoulders of our state legislators who put the trigger um, ban into effect in 2019 um, and set the trap for it to be um, enacted this year. Voting at the state and local level is important, but now more than ever, voting directly allows you to participate in activism on this issue. Question number two on the state ballot in November 2022 that you as a Kentucky citizen get to vote on will read, are you in favor of amending the Constitution of Kentucky by creating a new section of the Constitution to be numbered Section 26A to state as follows. To protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of an abortion. Voting yes on that codifies in the state Constitution that there is no right to abortion. If the state Constitution is amended, as Question 2 proposes, to codify that there is no right to abortion in Kentucky, that becomes a much, much more difficult battle to fight. Um, that would be a huge loss for choice and for women's health in Kentucky. Voting no simply allows for, for a chance to fight this more battle by battle and maybe come up with legislation that at least has some exceptions for cases of rape or incest or impregnation of minors. Something that at least allows for abortion prior to a certain number of weeks. So now, more than ever, it is absolutely essential that we share the de-identified stories of our patients who have sought abortions for a number of reasons. Those that were medically necessary, those that were medically the safest thing, but ultimately would be deemed elective, and those that were elective in the classic sense of the term, but were the safest option for the patient because of social reasons. By humanizing this issue and telling the stories of the patients that we come in contact with, and for those who feel safe to do so, their own stories of seeking abortion, that's essential in these next few weeks as we're ramping up to this amendment being on the ballot. I'll say it again so it's clear. Kentuckians who vote no on question two in November get to directly help protect women's access to reproductive health care in Kentucky. This allows you to go beyond talking to a relative or social media activism, which are all important things, but voting no on question two in November allows you to participate in the legislative process and protect women's right to health care and protect OBs from the threat of felony convictions for simply providing life-saving health care to women.
Nobody likes the idea of abortion, but the women who seek abortions do it for a number of reasons that are not as black and white as a life-threatening situation or a completely elective abortion used as birth control. Life just is not that clear cut and leaving it up to choice and leaving it up to a conversation between patients and their physicians allows for that nuance and allows for women to choose what is the safest choice for their survival. Once again, this is Jess Adkins Murphy saying thank you so much for the gift of your time. I'm imploring you to please use your voice, use your vote, and may the world be your patient. Bye.